0: There's been a lot of eagle drama this past month in southwest D.C. Justice and Liberty, who's a couple of 22 years of eagles who live in a nest in a tree on the grounds of the police academy and have a webcam on them 24-7. They're a reality TV couple. (laughs) Well, it so happened that Justice left the nest and didn't return for several days and the nature world took notice. And it was even odder because Liberty and Justice had just mated and they had two eggs in the nest. And Liberty remained with the eggs. After a few days, she took a few short trips away to go get food. But then her trips became longer. And without a mate to sit on the eggs, the eggs lost their viability. And eventually, after two weeks, Liberty did not return to the nest. And so the experts sort of said, well, you know, this happens sometimes, even though a nest is very important, they take years building it, sometimes they abandon the nest, and that just looks like what happens. Don't worry, some other eagle will come and claim it. Well, lo and behold, Justice, three weeks after he left, returned to the nest, and Liberty then joined him, and they were reconciled. Now, the eagle experts said they probably left the nest because they were under stress. Now, there was no change in their environment. It's not like new construction went in next to them. So something it's part of their little nest world was stressful. And experts, of course, will not give an emotional life to eagles for good scientific reason. But I am neither a scientist nor an eagle expert, so I will give an emotional life (laughs) to liberty and justice. So Justice and Liberty had some kind of conflict there going on in the nest, and Justice decided it would be easier just to fly away and not deal with it. And Liberty kept the home fires burning, so to speak, for a few days, and left as she needed to, but then found that when she was away from the nest, this place that had all the memories of 22 years and the focus of the conflict and had these eggs that were probably not going to make it without a second to help care for them, Her times away became much more enjoyable than sitting there. And so finally she decided that starting over would be easier than dealing with the loss. The contemporary theologian Richard Rohr compares Easter and Lent in this way. Resurrection takes care of itself. It's getting people into tombs that's hard. And I feel that this Lent. As my departure from D.C. is only in a few weeks, I fear stopping going through the to-do lists of my work and home, because I know that when I stop, the gravity of the goodbye will hit. And it's not a death, but all of it at once feels a lot like death. And I've seen how grieving families, the comfort they take, in the to-do's after someone's died. The funeral to plan, the reception, the photo display, that it can keep one from being thrown into the tomb, which is a good thing, because sometimes you just need to ease yourself there. But you do need to go there, because you have to go through the tomb to get to the new life. It's a prerequisite. There is no resurrection without the tomb. And activity, activity cannot be mistaken for resurrection. Lent is the time of year where we prepare, we prepare to follow to the tomb. And the tomb is the place where we deal with the struggling questions, the loss, the things we're avoiding in our life because they feel like death in some way, but we prepare to go there, rather than fly away from it. Because we know we have to go through there to get to the resurrection. And Maybe liberty and justice, the eagles knew something about that, and that's what brought them back. Before the tomb, though, there's the desert. And that's where we find Jesus today. Like many before him and many after him, he goes to the desert with the questions he's struggling with. So right before this, he's baptized. And what happens in the baptism? The dove comes down, the skies open up, and he hears, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus walks away from that, filled with the Spirit, but wondering... What do I do with that? What does that even mean? So he goes in the desert with these questions, and if we look at this dialogue, this conversation between him and the devil, it, it looks less like a conversation between two people, two entities, and more like what would probably comes up in his head as he's trying to figure out what does it mean to be the son of God? What does it mean for how he's going to be and do in the world? Is he going to change the world, making stones into bread? Is he going to amass as much power as he can on behalf of God, but amass it? All these things can be yours? Or is he going to wow the world, wow the people around him with some spectac- spectacular display of power, throwing himself off the temple and being caught by angels so they will know his significance? What does it mean to be the son of God? Contemporary, or, uh, 20th century spiritual writer Henry Nouwen Connects three temptations, these three temptations, to three lies that we as people tell ourselves about our worth, about where our worth comes from. I am what I do. I am what I have. I am what others think or say about me. Turn these breads into stone. Sorry. You are what you do. All these things can be yours. You are what you have. And you can do something amazing and everybody will see who you are. You are what others think or say about you. And all of us are drawn to these things at different times in our life, but one of them, for each one of us, depending on our personality types, one of them, for each one of us, are the ones we tend to cling to. One of these three. It tends to be where the place we go for our ego boost. It tends to be the place where, when it's threatened, we feel more deeply. It tends to be what guides the choices we make in our day-to-day living. I am what I do, that's pretty obvious. We're doers, those who are doers. I am what I have is not necessarily possessions. It goes beyond that. It can be the relationships of your life, the loyalty of those relationships or something you have. Or for those who are real thinkers, who live in their head, the ideas become what you have and what give you a sense of identity. And for I am what others think or say about me, it's not just wanting everybody to like you. It's wanting people to see you in a particular way. And that way may be as intelligent, as powerful, as compassionate, as helpful. I mean, it can be any number of things. But you need that feedback loop to find yourself. Uh, Recently, in our winter series on the Enneagram with the 20s and 30s group, we did some work with part of this. And it shouldn't surprise you to learn that of the dozen who were in the room that night, only all but one were either, I am what I do, or I am what others think or say about me. Because this is Washington, right? It's, It's who knows you, not even just who you know, it's who knows you, and what they know about you, and what you do. And these things make a lot of sense as to why this is part of human nature, evolutionarily speaking. It should matter what we do, it should matter what we have, it should matter how people relate to us. The problem becomes, When that I am part is hardened and not softened, because you're not what you do or what you have or what others say about you, you are a child of God. That is where your worth comes from, that is where your identity comes from. We all need to be reminded of that sometimes, even Jesus. So when Jesus goes out into the desert, struggling with what does it mean to be the Son of God, what should he do with that? The response he gets back is you are not what you do, no matter how many miracles you may do or how many people you may heal. You're not what what you have, no matter how many people may follow you or how many people may not follow you. And you are not what other people say or think about you, good or bad. You're a child of God. He doesn't get an answer about what that means because that is the answer. And he counters all these other pools by turning to Scripture that reminds him who he is. And Scripture is a good place to start for that. And so is prayer. Because it can be easy to say, I'm a child of God, or to tell our kids, you're a child of God, or say it. But to feel it deeply in the heart and mind in a way that can resist these very real pools of this world. To equate ourselves with doing and having. And relating that takes a deeper knowledge and prayer can help us experience that in fact there are prayer postures that can counter each of these things depending on which one you are most linked to a prayer posture is called that because it's just a a aspect of the prayer so the prayer posture for those who are the doers is stillness Stop doing. For those who are the havers, the collectors, your prayer posture is silence, both around you and inside of you. You are not the ideas you have. And the prayer posture for those who like the feedback loop of the people is solitude. You are not what others reflect you to be. And practicing, a good key to know that, that this is a good prayer posture for you to help grow is that you resist it in the rest of your life. <laughs> right? It's not the only way you can pray, but it promotes growth, okay? Let me just be quiet. Silence, solitude, and stillness. If one of those things is like, oh, I can't do that, that's probably a pretty good clue, Right? It feels, it feels difficult because it counters where we get our energy from. The life-giving energy from doing, or the life-giving energy from being around people, or the life-giving energy of engaging what we have. And so it feels like going towards the tomb. And the tomb, the tomb is a prerequisite. For resurrection. resurrection takes care of itself. It's getting people into a tomb first. It's hard. Jesus in the desert found sil- solitude, stillness, and silence. And that was not the tomb. The desert's not the tomb. It's the preparation for it. Because what he finds there, that anchoring to God and his identity as the Son of God, is what prepares him for the rest of the journey. The joys and the difficulties and the struggles and the blessings that are to come, that are on the way to the tomb. And the tomb is waiting, metaphorically and practically speaking, for all of us. And so is resurrected life. So may this Lent you follow Jesus into the tomb, and then on towards resurrection. Amen. Amen.